Amen. Jesus is born. Jesus is born. The hope of the ages. Messiah has come. What a great day. I heard Jordan singing that the other day. Some of y'all need to just get a little bit of, when he give you a little shock when you come in the building or whatever, loosen up a little bit, get with it a little more. I stood in the back, I heard her singing up here. Now, I'm from the South, and here's how you handle that in the South. I come from the back, I just yelled at her, sing, girl. <laughs> and if any of y'all ever want to just yell that out, it's okay, it's okay. It just means you're with it. You're, you're yes. What a great song. Jordan Roselle, thank you so much for that ministry today. Beautiful, beautiful. As we look at Christmas over this month, we're going to look at gifts that are provided because of the great gift. The greatest Christmas gift ever was? Okay, same girl. <laughs> the greatest Christmas gift ever was? Yes! I, you, I, you maybe had too much eggnog over the weekend. I don't know, or ate turkey and it's still kicking in. Jesus is the greatest gift ever. And it, it's great because it's not just a thing that you get, but when you get him, you get everything. So last week we looked at this truth that when you get Jesus, your sins are forgiven and you are cleansed. That's the beginning point. How beautiful. How beautiful. So many great hymn writers talk about this. The Word of God describes it so clearly that our sins made us vile and wretched. Every one of us. I think we like to look at ourselves like, wait, we're pretty good. You know, I'm better than most. None of us. There is no one righteous. No, not one. And without the work of Christ, we would be doomed forever. We were hopeless. We were helpless. But at just the right moment, Christ showed up. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 9, 15, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift, the gift of Jesus. This week, I want to look at the second thing that we receive because we have received the gift of Jesus. When you bring him into your life and you make him your Lord and Savior, your sins are forgiven. They are cleansed, washed away. But there's something, the next step that happens takes you to, to the next level is now you are reconciled with the Father. Now, here's what you have to understand. The fact that we needed to be reconciled means that there was a broken love and trust relationship. What had been created initially in the garden, the fellowship of God with man, had been destroyed because of sin. But then Romans, Paul tells us in chapter 5, what this reconciliation looks like. Read along with me. For while we were still weak or powerless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. In other words, if there's someone that's going to die, and the only way their death is preventable is if I take their place. That's where all of us kind of count the cost. And we look at that person and go, are they worth saving? 
Is it worth me dying in their place? Paul says, one would scarcely die for a righteous person, maybe if it was someone who had done good to them, possibly. So you're only going to give your life up for the very, very best. But while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we've now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received reconciliation. God, I thank you for your word. I pray that your spirit and your word together would bring transformation in the hearts of people today. I thank you, God, that you're continually working on us to, to bring us into the image of Jesus. Lord, I pray for those who are in the room or who are watching online who have not been reconciled to you, that today would be a day of reconciliation, a day of renewal, of recognizing that they are your child when they put their faith in Christ. God, I thank you for your faithfulness and give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. You hear this from me often, and it probably hasn't been as true as it is today in a, in a while. When I, when I look at this topic and study it and read it, 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 my hard problem is this, is getting my arms wrapped around it in a way that I can give to you in an appropriate time. This is such a massive concept that you've got to, to understand. And I'm praying that God will help me to be very efficient and effective with my words today and that he will touch your heart to receive and maybe even hear things that I don't say through the power of the Spirit. God can do that. Illuminate and amplify in your heart what I'm saying. The mission of Christ was to repair what sin destroyed. That's why he came. And here's what you have to understand. God cannot coexist with sin. His holiness burns against sin. Now, this is something we don't get very well uh, in general. We don't get in our day, but I don't know that anybody got it too much in the past either. The reality that when sin is in our heart, God's holiness will burn against it. And if we don't get the sin out, eventually the holiness burns against us. Judgment comes to those who walk in sin. I'm going to give you a statement in a minute. I'll throw it out there now for you. I was going to wait a little bit, but I'll throw it out there. We hear this a lot, and, and I read it this week in this article that turned it the other way, and I like it better this way. God loves every sinner, but he hates every sin. We normally flip it the other way, and then we say God hates sin, but he loves the sinner. And the whole point is, loves the sinner. We kind of like disregard the fact that he hates sin. That needs to be well understood. God loves every sinner, but he hates sin. Sin is, 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 is so destructive in nature. It mars his creation. It creates separation. And there is no such thing as a little sin. And yet in our self-justification process, we quickly want to pass it off as well. It's really no big deal. And, you know, God understands. So it's, it's not a big, big thing. It is a big thing when you walk in sin. 
I think confession of sin is something we need to recognize for the believer that when we make a mistake, we quickly confess and we ask God to, to put us back on the right path. And that first of all, we allow the Holy Spirit to come into our life and remove all that. Like I talked about last week, Neil, I was reading your book this week, and there's a beautiful statement, great, great book for, for, for men specifically, but probably for women too, that talks about how we get deceived by sin, in this case, particularly talking about pornography and lust, those kind of issues. And the, one of the comments you made in there that I love is we need deliverance before we need discipline. It's not enough just to try harder. You've got to let the supernatural occur. Can I, can I encourage you as we're headed toward a new year to, to, to pray with me and believe with me for this in our church in 2023 that every time that we come together, we would have an awareness of the supernatural that is among us. If we are simply here to motivate you to do better and try harder and improve what you're doing in life, then we are not a Christian organization. We're a moral society. There's some value in that. But what has to happen is an encounter with Jesus that transforms your life. We can't rationalize our sins aren't bad because they're not as big as somebody else's. Number one, where did you get your skill? How do you measure that? See, I think my sin, your sin, when we err, when we do wrong, that sin was what made Jesus go to the cross. And how dare we think of that as a little sin? Say, Pastor, what are you talking about today? I'm talking about a pursuit of holiness that is bedded in reconciliation with God. Pursuing right living because God has redeemed us. Sin brings alienation from God. Only Jesus could bring that restoration back, and faith in him is where it starts. So let me go through this kind of quick, because I'm really asking for the Holy Spirit to do something supernatural today, and I'm not trying to talk you into anything. I'm just presenting the truth of God's word. When sin came, it brought enmity and separation from God. The word enmity is not one we use very often in our culture, and our vocabulary, but it means to be at odds with uh, a diff- another person to the point of, of being enemies with them, the kind of a similar root word there, but, but having this animosity. It's not even like, well, they're kind of enemies because they're on the other team or they're on the other side. It, it's more of they are my mortal enemy. When sin occurred... We became enemies of God. Now, interestingly enough, it wasn't God being harsh. It was God being holy. God's holiness, some people don't understand. They think, well, why is God hard here, but then he's nice here? God's holiness is is the defining characteristic of his nature. And his holiness is expressed both in, in, in his, his consumption against sin and his restoration of the one who repents. 
The holiness of God brings us to that place. Sin brought enmity, made us to be adversaries, enemies, combatants with God. It also separates us from God. Now, the word for reconcile that's often in Scripture comes from a root word that means to change or exchange. And it's this picture of that our relationship with God became different. We are reconciled to God through the death of his son. Because of what Christ did, we are brought into relationship with God. This breakdown that occurred happened because of man's willful disobedience. I try to think of illustrations to make this picture clear, and they all fall so woefully short, but maybe you'll track with this. Let's say that you're going to, uh, to one of your relatives' houses. It's, it's, it's an aunt and an uncle, and they are extremely wealthy. You go to their house for the holidays, and they're going to go on a little trip, and your uncle says to you, we're going to be gone for a few hours. We're going to run some errands. We'll be back in a few hours. And says, uh, you can do anything in the house you want to do, except there's a car out in the garage. It's a very expensive car. It's a Lamborghini. And more than that part of it, it's not operating quite exactly right. And I'm fearful that if you got out there and were looking at it, playing around with it, it, it could hurt you. You could die. So you can do anything in the house you want, but don't touch the Lamborghini. Well, how many of you know there's something in our human nature when that is said? The first thing that we want to see is the Lamborghini. And we go out there, and sure enough, we're looking at it, and then we see the keys are there on the counter of the workshop where the car is. And we rationalize and we go, well, it wouldn't really hurt if we just started the engine. I'd like to hear how that engine sounds. Let's, let's, let's just see what happens. So we, we get the key and we, we put it in. All of a sudden, we're gripped with this, this guilt, like we shouldn't be doing this. But, well, it's already there, so we fire the thing up. Remember... Your uncle told you that don't do that because it's not working right. Something bad could happen. And sure enough, just when you turn the key, something is off in the engine. Something's leaking. There's a problem there, and it erupts with an explosion. Knocks you back in the car, and you stagger out. And it, now, now, we would all, we're faced with a dilemma right there. What do we do now? There are some of us in the room that our first thought would be, Run, get away from here, and hopefully never see my uncle again in my entire life. There'll be some making excuses. If we ever get caught, we're going to say, no, it wasn't me. I don't know what happened. I heard the boom, but I got out of there when it scared me, and I ran. And we're trying to figure out all our excuses and all of our things. And the uncle comes back and sees it, and he's concerned that, that maybe you're dead can't find you, don't know what's going on. And yet our guilt drives us further away. It's a little bit of a picture of our attitude toward God. It, another illustration, we walked into his house, same kind of story, uncle, all this expensive stuff, 
even more than the Lamborghini. This is a little part of it, a couple different elements here. I couldn't get them all in one story to work out right. But it would be as if you walked into your uncle's house, especially for, for people who continue to sin and they claim the grace of God gives them that privilege. Can I tell you the grace of God, according to the word of God, the grace of God always leads us to repentance. It never leads us to indulgence. If you're somehow claiming that God's grace leads you to a place of sinful indulgence, you have been horribly deceived. You walk into the uncle's house and he's got this vase. That's when they're expensive, when they're not vase. He's got this vase in the front room. It's several hundreds of years old. And this is like what we did in our sin of rebellion against God. It would be as, as, as if you walked over to it and you picked it up and looked at it. Well, number one, you're not even supposed to touch it, but you pick it up and look at it. And you say, hey, is this expensive? And he says, yes. It's very expensive. It's irreplaceable. And you go, good. That was our sin against God. When he's directing us toward righteousness, we choose in his very face to choose sin. And we somehow make it to be glamorous and appealing when in reality the word of God is true that sin brings death. Sin separates us from God. And the result of all these things is in the passage that we just read. Four things that Paul says that define us because of our hostility toward God. Number one, he said, we're powerless. Number two, he says, we're ungodly. You can't make up a stronger word that would be anti-God than ungodly, not God-like. How much more can he define where our problem is? Then he calls us sinners. And then he concludes by saying we were enemies with God. We found ourselves in this position because of our disobedience to the holiness of God. Now, notice this. Alienation occurs. Separation occurs. Hostility occurs. And yet, often, we are the ones who become hostile toward God. He's the one who has the right to be hostile toward us. Yet he's the one who offers reconciliation. How beautiful is that? We were the perpetrators in the relationship, but God initiated reconciliation. We were at this spot in life where we had done wrong, but instead of repenting and being sorrowful, we allowed our own selfishness to raise up a level of hostility against him. The breach that was created would never be fixed on our own efforts. I talked about it last week, even with receiving forgiveness. It was like trying to span a, a thousand foot gorge with a five foot board. You're never going to get, you're not even going to be close. You can't, even with MacGyver's help, you can't come up with a way to get there. You can get all the duct tape and duct tape and bailing wire that you want to find, and you're still not going to make it. All of your efforts will fall woefully short. But hear this, the death of Jesus atoned for our sins. 
We're in this horrible spot. We have a problem that we can't fix. But listen to this. God's character and God's plan were never in doubt. His goal from the beginning was reconciliation. Provision was made. I think this is such a beautiful thing, and you all know this. I hope you do. If not, uh, listen to it and hear it clearly and grab it, embrace it right now. Provision for restoration was even promised at the pronouncement against Adam and Eve in the garden when it concludes with, and your seed will will crush Satan. Your seed will prevail. There will be one that comes along. At that time, I'm not sure that Adam and Eve really knew what that meant exactly. It's obvious from Jewish history that a lot of those people didn't really get it. But Jesus Christ came to atone for all sin. That means he paid the price that we couldn't pay. Notice this. It's a side note. I read it in my notes this week and it didn't really fit anywhere, but I had to throw this thought out there for you. When Jesus resurrected from the dead, he immortalized and eternalized salvation. Hebrews talks about it real clear. It says it was once for all. What he did when he rose from the dead, it cemented the work on the cross because he overcame even death. In Jesus, we are reconciled to God. 2 Corinthians 5, 19, that is in Christ. God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. The perfect righteousness of Jesus adequately satisfies God's divine judgment. God accepted the self-sacrifice of Jesus in place of man's death. Through sin, through, through Adam, sin entered the world. But through Jesus, we now have reconciliation. Where Adam messed up, Jesus now repairs. So it brings me to the third point of what I want to share today, that faith in Christ brings reconciliation. There's always debate about this. In 2 Corinthians 5, it talks about, just read it a minute ago, that God was in Christ reconciling us. And then the next verse down, I think it is, says, therefore, be reconciled to God. And so some people, they, 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 they get so locked in on thoughts and they, they can't make connection or understand process sometimes in their theology. And, and depending on how you look at it, I understand where they're coming from, but they don't see the big picture. They get so lost in the, the up-close stuff that they can't figure it out. Wait, God's reconciling us, but then tells us to be reconciled. How do we need to be reconciled if he's already reconciled us? Okay, step back and look at the big picture. This is, this is a sequence of events. L- let me give it to you in a way that, that will, an illustration that I think is a really good one. It will help you understand this. If someone went and deposited in your bank account tomorrow $500,000, but you never acted upon that deposit, in essence, it would do you no good. I guess it'd be a little good because your checks wouldn't bounce. You'd have a pretty good-sized cushion there. (laughs) 
God provided the opportunity for you to receive this gift of reconciliation. But it is activated by your faith in Christ. You are reconciled to God not through your efforts, not through your commitment to, to, to piety, but you are reconciled to God because of your faith in Christ. Now, let me go back to the illustration of slamming the vase to the ground. Maybe right after you do it, all of a sudden you have this pang of consciousness and remorse sweeps over. And you go, why did I just do that? And then you're told, well, it was covered by insurance. And after we've talked to them a little bit, they found out there's one very similar to it that they can procure for us. So it can be replaced. You'd still feel a little bit guilty, hopefully, and remorse, hopefully, but wouldn't there be a little bit of joy in that what your action did, there was a way for it to be remedied? And how many of you know that if you have the right approach toward life, you would be thankful for that insurance company that was going to replace that? Catch the, catch the 30,000 view thought right here. Jesus stepped in like an insurance company and said, I will pay for what you destroyed. You would never be able to do it. Now, it's my deep conviction that when you understand this, it will create enormous joy and worship and praise toward God. It will make you want to live a holy life because you know that's God's plan for you and his plans are good. The devil is so deceptive and so evil. He waves things in front of you that have an appearance of goodness, of joy, and yet they result in death. The whole time God is saying, walk with me, walk toward me. When we put our faith in Christ, we are reconciled. We are changed, a radical change. I would like to use the word transformed from all that sin brings to all that Jesus provides. When we're walking in sin, there is fear, there is guilt, there is shame. When we come to Christ, those things are replaced, and now there's a confidence in him. There's a gratitude for him, and there's a joy through him that fills our hearts. The penalty of sin has been paid by the sacrifice of Jesus Come back home. The Father is longing to be restored to you. We now have power to live in freedom because Jesus has conquered sin and conquered death and given us the victory. There's a couple other passages of Scripture there for you to read later. I don't want to get into them all right now, but I want to give them to you. And I had room on your paper, so I put them on there. Romans chapter 5, that's the passage I'm dealing with today a little bit, not in great depth, but just in surface covering. But I'll go back to the first part of the chapter and read this as I conclude today. Therefore, 
since we have been justified by what? Faith. We have what? Wow. Wow. All of the things that haunted us, all of the things that nagged at us, they are erased by our faith in Jesus Christ because he has reconciled us to God. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by what? Faith into this grace in which we stand. That's a word of strength. That's a word of power. We stand strong because of the grace of God. And we rejoice in the hope of glory. I love when Paul uses words like the next verse that he starts with. Not only that, because that's kind of a, a, it's kind of a natural, right? When you are in victory, when you are uh, in hope, joy is a natural byproduct. But he says not only in those moments, but we rejoice even in our suffering. How many of you know that when we come to this place in life, we frustrate the devil? He expects us to rejoice when we think about the goodness of God. But what about when we suffer? Here's what Paul says. When we suffer, we know that suffering produces endurance. Thank you, God, that even though I'm suffering from something in life, it's building strength in me. And that strength that causes me to endure is producing character in me. And that character that's being built in me is producing hope in me. And hope will never disappoint or shame. Because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. What a great transformation is available because of the work of Christ. Be reconciled to God. Last thought for those of you that are followers of Christ, committed to him. Paul says, and I'm not going into it very much, it's a quick statement for you here, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and now he has given us the ministry of reconciliation. Purpose in life to be the agent of that leads other people to a place of reconciliation. We didn't die on the cross. We're not the ones that, that, that reconcile them, but we're the agent of reconciliation. Let me introduce you to Jesus. He will make you right with God. He will restore you. Would you bow your heads with me all across the room? If you're watching online, would you just right now take a moment to recognize you're in God's presence and would you take a moment just to, to look into your own heart I'm not asking today how many times you've been to church this year I'm not asking how much you put in the offering I'm asking a very simple simple question have you been reconciled to God have you allowed the work of Jesus to be activated by faith in your life so that you are right with him. Understand it's not something you earn. It's not something you accomplish. It's something you receive. But it will transform your life.
Amazingly enough, when that first breach of relationship happened back in Genesis, and Adam and Eve are away from God, their guilt didn't drive them to a place of seeking God, but in their guilt, God sought them. Can I tell you, God's coming for you today with love and grace to forgive you and to reconcile you. It's a journey we all have to take or else we will die in our sins. I cannot atone for my sins. I can't pay that price. But fortunately, Jesus already did. If you're here today and you say, Pastor, I need to accept the work of Christ on the cross in my life by faith. Allow it to transform me. Allow it to work in me so I can be reconciled to God. If that's you today, would you lift your hand all across the room? How many? That's what I need in my life today. I need to be made right with God. I need to be put in right relationship. Thank you. How many others? I need to be in right relationship with God. And it can only happen through faith in Jesus Christ. That will transform your life, by the way. It's not just saying a prayer. It's not just coming to the front. But it's living a life that is committed to the Lordship of Jesus. How many of you in the room would say, I want God to help me to be an agent of reconciliation? I'm asking God to use me to be light and love to those who are in darkness. Would you raise your hand all across the room? Maybe that's a great goal for you to have in this coming year. You don't have to wait till January to start, by the way. Many, many of you raised your hands. Would you stand with me all across the room? I'd like for our prayer team to come to the front. I want to give you a word of instruction. If you raised your hand saying, I need to be reconciled to God, I encourage you with all that I have in me to come and let someone pray with you. There's something that happens. It moves from the abstract to the concrete. We have someone agree with us. If you raised your hand for that, I invite you to come. Maybe the Lord spoke to you in a really strong way about you being a reconciler, having the ministry of reconciliation, and you want to come and share that and have someone pray with you. Maybe there's a different need in your life that you want prayer for. I invite you to come and let someone join you.